0: Welcome to Humanize Me. I am Bart Campolo. This is my podcast. And this week's episode is sponsored by the Yosemite National Park. That's right, because that's where I am right now. And we came up here for a few days, and it is just magnificent. And don't worry if you're worried, I'm not going to start waxing eloquent on the natural beauty of Yosemite. Um, but but someday I am, because like I actually have this new kind of idea. I've been getting lots of requests from people in our podcast community saying, hey, you know, back in the day when I was a Christian, because some of us were Christians, I used to do morning devotions. And it was kind of this, I would get up and I would pray and read some Bible and think. And it kind of focused my day and helped me to be more grateful and more aware all throughout the day. And now that I'm... Um, secular, people are saying, I kind of miss that. Is there such a thing as a secular devotional, something focused on natural beauty, focused on the wonder of consciousness, focused on kind of the human virtues and values that we all share that could kind of, you know, a, a bite-sized chunk of inspiration that would get me going during the, at the beginning of the day. And so uh, I don't think we'll call it our daily bread, but we'll call it something. And, and I'm working on that. And if you have ideas, you should send them in at Bart, to, to me at bartcampolo.org. Um, that's the website. Uh, the, the, the email address is bartcampolo at gmail.com if, if you're interested. But I'd love to hear from you, not only about the podcast, but if you have any ideas for this kind of devotional thing, this kind of secular devotional. But in the meantime, here I am at Yosemite, and I, I brought my microphone with me not to do a whole podcast, but because I had this amazing conversation last week with James Mulholland, who most of you probably don't know, but but but, but about 10 years ago, when I was still a Christian, and I was trying to make Christianity work, or desperately trying to stay in the game, I read a book called If Grace Is True. And it was kind of the coolest version of Christianity I could imagine. It was, it was, it was this guy, James Mulholland was writing right from where I was at. And I ended up reaching out to him. We had a couple of great phone calls and I just thought he was a wonderful person. He was writing with a guy named Philip Gully, And uh, together they put out a whole series of books about a kind of a progressive Christianity that was pretty cool. And so if you're trying to stay in the Christian game, those books could be really helpful to you. Not surprisingly, in the process of writing those books, James Mulholland figured out that he couldn't stay in the game himself. Like those were kind of last gasp efforts to make it work. And over the last few years, James, like me, sort of migrated to secularism, and he ended up writing a book called um, "Leaving My Religion" or or "Leaving Your Religion." That um, and there's a there's a website, "Leaving Your Religion," and if you Google James Mulholland, you'll find it. Um, And I did. Somebody said to me, hey, when I was working on this devotional thing, somebody said, hey, have you checked out James Mulholland's new stuff? And I looked him up and I was like, wait, I know that guy. And so I sent him an email and I said, listen, we ought to catch up. And he said, yeah, let's do it. Um, and I said, can I record it? It may work. It may not. I just want to talk to you, um, but I'll record it and maybe it'll be a podcast. But I got to tell you, I loved talking with James Mulholland, and I think there's some really cool stuff in there about the transition. And he and I do not agree on everything. In particular, our lives on the other side of faith have taken sort of different turns. And I think it may be because he wasn't just burned out on supernaturalism. I think he was also burned out on congregational ministry, which happens to people who are pastors, happens to people that work with people day in and day out for 20 or 30 years. I never did that when I was a Christian. I was not a pastor. And so it's been much more easy for me on the other side to kind of get into community building. But anyway, so we've gotten some, we've gotten some, some, not, I wouldn't say arguments, but we, we definitely, there's a, he's not like me and yet he is like me. And I think he's like you. And I think you'll like this conversation. So that's it. Go for it. You're listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey, so so there you are. I, it's funny because, as you might expect, knowing I was going to get to talk to you again, I started reading up on your website and checking things out. I feel like lots of people write to me and they say, I've gone through what you're going through. I, I, I'm going through what you went through or... Like you and I are very similar or, mm-hmm. I mean, but you know, I got that throughout my Christian life too, where like you would sure. speak somewhere and somebody like, I think we're just alike. Yeah. And, and, I, and I would always look at them and go like, nah, I, I really, I don't think we are. Um, <laughs> so I, so I feel awkward. I felt awkward when I like read your transition and then think about who you were at the end of your Christian life which was very similar to who I was at the end of my Christian life. Sure. And I go like, no, Jim, I, I think you and I are actually very similar. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, I said in my email to you, I, it is interesting. You know, we both grew up in very similar, uh, small Christian liberal art college environments with, you know, your father was a, a sociologist. My father was a philosopher. And, and, uh, so I, I think both of us, uh, we're given room and space to question and to think, uh, to think d- deeply, and um, and you're right. The trajectories out of that have been have been uh, remarkably similar.
0: So. I, mean, I mean, the difference is, it's like your website. When you were a Christian, you actually wrote the books, whereas I I would just give talks, and people would say, "Have you written a book on that?" And I would go, "Like, no, but you should read this book by Jim Mulholland. <laughs> uh, you know, I never got around to writing. I'm, I'm not a very good I'm not very good at writing things down, but that whole trajectory, especially the part where you become—I I often talk about Malcolm Gladwell—and uh, that and it's actually not his concept; he just popularized it. The concept of ten thousand hours, right? Where you know t- it takes ten thousand hours to master anything. Mm-hmm. And I always think that somebody like you or or me that we actually spent enough time thinking about Christianity and in particular thinking about grace
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and to, to master Christianity is to abandon it. Hmm. Um, and so, but the last stage before you abandon it is you have this amazingly good God who you know, loves everybody and is going to forgive everybody and isn't responsible for any bad thing that happens. You know, he doesn't do anything, but he's really nice. Um,
1: Exactly. And
0: so, you know, that's what, what I think I recognize most when I was reading up on you is I was thinking the same thing happened to you is, is that when you and I connected right towards the end, we were both grace mongers. Mm -hmm. And then the weird thing for me, and I, I I, wonder if this has happened to you, is, is that on the other side of losing my supernaturalism, I mean, I had dialed supernaturalism way down. Right, right. But on the other side of losing it and realizing I don't believe in kind of any supernatural realities, grace struck me all of a sudden as the most horrible doctrine mm-hmm. founded on the concept of original sin. Right. It, it's just a terrible doctrine, just a doctrine that says like, hey, the reason you need unmerited favor is because you yourself are worthless. You are yeah. you are deserving of damnation. And and from the moment you were born as a little child, you deserve it. Mm-hmm. And and I thought like it's so funny for me because to me grace was the way I escaped God being a horrible person. And then in the end Grace became kind of the foundation of the problem, and I don't know if you experienced that at all, where where you realize like, gosh, the only reason we need grace is because of this kind of cosmic death sentence.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's well put, Bart. I think I think maybe for me there was this middle place before I left religion of kind of. Uh, uh, this idea of universal and expansive love, uh, but that's different than grace or un- even unconditional love, which suggests that there probably should have been conditions, but you know they've been uh, relaxed, politely, politely relaxed or excused. You know, um, so I, I think I got to that place of this kind of expansive, uh, universal love, and, and to some extent, once you come to that place, the um, you know, you can you can believe in that God, but if you don't, there really isn't any consequence to that. Uh, you know, so uh, sometimes people will say, "Well, uh, is there any kind of God you can believe in?" And I said, "Well, maybe a God who doesn't really care whether I believe or not." Uh, to to some extent, that that God is is palatable to me. Um, but as soon as that God seems to be enmeshed in human life in such a way that that uh, our obedience, uh, our adoration, our um, you know is a necessity to somehow create this uh, relationship, this uh, uni- uh, universe that that seems pretty mythological and and rather uh, unnecessary, you know yeah, and I think the other thing that I have wrestled with and finally uh, reconciled is that in some sense. I finally left because religion no longer made me happy uh, now for for many many years it did it brought me satisfaction happiness uh, uh, you know it it was uh, central to my life and I think when I finally realized that it was religion had become in some sense an obstacle or detriment to my happiness rather than a, a tool or avenue um, that's when you know. I think I finally found the courage to to step away. That being said, I, I'm really careful to acknowledge that for for a lot of other people, it still brings in, incredible happiness.
0: Well, um, I mean, that, that's. I mean, there's two things like that I wanted to ask you about because I, again, like we're on similar trajectories, and yet the language I use is almost is so different. I call myself a post Christian. Because that's... And I've used that term, post-religious, yeah. See, but I would never use the term post-religious. And and I'll tell you why. And and it's because a a few years ago, I came out here to work. I mean, I'm I'm the humanist chaplain at the University of Southern California these days. Sure, sure. And I work in the Office of Religious Life Mm
1: -hmm.
0: under the Dean of Religious Life. I mean, I I, I should say I I volunteer. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. it's not a paid position. But the reason that I, I, you know, he's very clear. He says, look, here, he he invited me to come. He said, we have chaplains. We have 50 chaplains, you know, serving every kind of supernatural woo-woo you can imagine. Like, sure. You know, we got Hindus, Wiccans, Buddhists, Muslims, 40 brands of Christian, like Jewish, everything. He said, but half of our campus is secular. Mm-hmm. And there's nobody looking after the spiritual lives of those people, nobody looking after their, nobody trying to, to, to nurture their commitment to goodness. Mm-hmm. And so I'd like you to come. But he said, the thing you must understand is that here at USC, we define religion as the pursuit of life's ultimate questions. Mm-hmm. And he said, so I consider you a religious leader because you're still consumed with asking the question where do we come from? What happens when we die? What is a good life? How, how do, what what makes people happy? Um, what is the foundation of good and evil? Um, mm-hmm. You know, that these, he said, these are kind of the ultimate questions. He said, a lot of people answer these questions using supernatural narratives. Mm-hmm. He said, you have a completely secular narrative, but you still are obsessed with reaching out to lonely young people, trying to draw them into fellowship and get them to commit their lives to, 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 to kind of loving other people and pursuing social justice and cultivating a sense of gratitude. And he's right. I do that
1: mm-hmm.
0: not because I believe that there's any kind of eternal reward for it, but because it seems to be the best pathway to happiness.
1: Sure, sure. So I, I have played around with a lot of different things. I, I played around with the term atheist, uh, and in some true, some sense, that is a, a, a that defines me. In some sense, uh, I played around with uh, post-religious, or, or, or and I'd be very comfortable with post-Christian because I recognize that in some way I can never escape that first fifty years. Now you're shaped it, by it. Yeah, yeah, it formed me. So uh, I can be post, but I can't be. Uh, non uh, disconnected from yeah it. yeah uh, so I think there's some truth to that um, I I struggled with the whole um, humanism humanist or or even secular humanist or uh, even the term um, spiritual uh, although I really do like that concept of connectedness I, I, I you know that in some sense that I had some very powerful experiences as a, as a young man that, um, at the time, I, I called uh, encounters with Jesus. But as I look back, they were very much moments of intense connectedness to, to the world, to the universe, to to everything that is. Um, some people would call those moments of transcendence, epiphanies, mountaintop experiences. You know, there's a lot of terms out there, and I, and and. And again, as I began to read more widely, you begin to realize that Christianity doesn't have a monopoly on those. I mean, they happen in every religious uh, setting and and with non-religious people. Um, If I had to identify myself now, Bart, I would probably say I'm an uh, apotheist uh, in the sense that I'm not really concerned about God uh, and discussions about God, you know, I, I ran into a whole lot of people when I first came out that I realized were anti-theist. They they spent just as much energy being against God. Oh, as I yes. Spent, you know, being for God, and and that didn't have any attraction to me. Um, and, and so I'm I'm really to a place where if I had to define what my struggle is, it's a, it's about finding this way um, to be fully engaged and one with the things I do. Um, but but I, I guess I've, I've got to the point where I'm not too concerned about identifying myself, uh, other than Jim, you know, I'm pretty clear on that because what I do think happens in the identifying is, tends to close us down to each other. You know, once I identify you or you identify yourself, then I've kind of have this box. And, and what it really does is in some sense um, remove the need for me to explore and engage fully with, with you. Um, so I, I really resist it anymore uh, when people say, what are you? Well, you know, I'm just a human being trying to figure this out just like you are, you know, and let's talk about that. How are you, how are you figuring it out? You know,
0: every fiber in my body is just like twitching right now because I'm like, but wait a second, <laughs> categorizing is what makes us human. Like that, mm-hmm. that, that it's being able to differentiate between a chair and a mattress that enables us to go through life. And that mm-hmm. while these categorizations are in some sense arbitrary, we it's, it's not that they necessarily close us off to things. It's that they tell us what to sit on and what, 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 can, hold our, what, what can hold our weight. You go like, oh, that looks like a chair. I, you know, I, I think I can sit on that. And you could be wrong, but if you don't have a way of sort of grouping things together, like things together, you're going to struggle. And so you know, my experience has been that the reason I struggle so hard with this identity thing is because I'm trying to wave a flag for all these people that are lost and lonely and saying you can rally up over here. Mm -hmm. You know, I know you've been, I know you've been rejected or you felt you felt thrown out or, 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 or marginalized in, in, in these other communities, but like, here's a community for people who want to pursue love in a non-supernatural way. And, and, and that, and maybe the reason I don't resist categorization so much is because I'm organizing. And when you're organizing, you have to have a flag.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's certainly a lot of truth to that. I, I think—
0: And are you, you not—like, I, I, when you say I, I'm, you're apath- apathetic about the conversation about God, are, are you apathetic about
1: other people? Like, are you apathetic in general at this stage in the game? No, I don't think so, so at all. I mean— um... In fact, in some ways, I think uh, leaving Christianity, leaving religion has uh, made it uh, easier for me to, to relate uh, with a, a much broader group of people. Uh, you know, looking back, I, I realize, well, I mean, maybe this is where the, the identity becomes difficult, is I, re- I realize now all through my life that every time I said, I am a Christian fairly early in the conversation or when I was a pastor, certainly I'm a pastor that my experiences with the people I was relating to were immediately shrunken.
0: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh,
1: you know, and you probably had that same experience. You know, you're sitting in uh an airplane and the person next to you says, you know, what do you do? You? What do you do? And as soon as you do that, how often did people turn away? <laughs> you know, they had a certain perception of what that meant about you and, you were and how you would judge and perceive them. Um, And I I tell you what, it's it's been interesting to relate to people without those kind of religious uh, identities, that I I really found people to be more open to me. Um, You know, for even, even spirituality, I mean, if you say to someone, well, tell me about your spirituality... That immediately infers that they really ought to have one, and they ought to be able to art- articulate it. Uh, and I, th- I think that can be intimidating to, to people. I, I, I think when we can reduce the language to the simplest of questions, you know, how are you figuring things out? I mean, there there's not much judgment in that. They should they should figure it out in some certain way, and that it ought to have some certain reference point. Um, it really just kind of invites them to to say where they're at now I, I do appreciate what you're what you're saying about uh, kind of raising the flag because um, I, I guess in some sense that's what the website was for me was an opportunity to say to people, hey if you're out there and and you're looking for some help looking for somebody who's you know traveled this this journey a little bit ahead of you you know here's a place for that. But the other thing, Bart, I really struggled with, and I, I had quite a few people who clearly wanted me to be their atheist pastor. I mean, I had people call me that. You're, you're going to be my atheist pastor. And, and, and I also had more than one group of people contact me and say, well, we want to start a community around this idea or this idea, progressive idea. And we really think you would be the right person to, to lead that. And in both of those circumstances, I really resisted that um, uh, now maybe that's personal I, I I don't necessarily want to say everyone should resist that 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 was that's the right decision for everyone but for me um, part of this was about journeying uh, with people but not with the constraints that somehow that became a dependency or uh, or, or an affiliation or a um
0: yeah you, you, you wanted to you, you wanted to keep the connections fluid exactly you you, you didn't you, you didn't want to in a sense um lead people
1: well and maybe this is it bart when i left christianity there was a lot of people i'd traveled a long time with who that that journey just ended like that you know it was over you got hurt my rel- my relationship to them ended um and and my sense of it was that relationship was so in, intertwined with this set of beliefs and set of values that, that, or this institutional, uh, group think. Uh, right. Right. That once I stepped out of that, all those relationships ended. So how do you move forward in such a way that you don't just do that with another group of people, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that, that's, that's been something I've really worked hard not to do is simply transfer all the ways that I was in religion, to a new set of people, groups, ideas. Um, uh, And that's that's not been easy. I don't think I've always pulled it off, but I've been very aware of it.
0: So, see, that's so, I mean, that's so weird because like I think of you in reading, especially in the old days I did, and now I I, I still do as kind of like, oh, this is is my soulmate. This is the guy who I, I get. And yet that part of your experience is so different from mine mm-hmm. and I'm, tr- and I'm trying to figure out why, like the first thing I'm trying to figure out is, is when I exited Christianity and I did so in a fairly public way, um, I didn't lose anybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't lose any Christians. I mean, like, like a handful of peripheral people, but nobody that was dear to me, nobody that mattered. Um. And and it, and so you know like oh why do you think that is I
1: I I I mean I, I I that that's I would say you're one of the very few people I've ever spoken to that's made that transition who would make that claim that's a so I I think your experience is the outlier now it's an interesting outlier and I'd be fascinated to try to figure that out but that I would suggest it is the outlier
0: well and you know the people I counsel now. I would say that you're probably right. What they're terrified of is that they're going to lose these people. And even in their family, they don't necessarily, quote unquote, lose them, but they lose their relationship. The relationship gets blown up. And, 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 and I think that maybe part of it was, is that I was so open and honest all through my 30 years as a Christian and so, like, when I got okay with gay people, I was, I was publicly okay with gay people. And when I became a universalist, I was publicly a universalist. And, and when I stopped thinking that the cross was necessary in order for God to forgive, because that made no sense whatsoever, that God needed to kill somebody in order to forgive when he was telling everybody else to forgive just out of the goodness of their heart, I was always saying these things. And so, like, if you were hanging with me by the end, if, if if we were still in relationship throughout that journey, when I came out as a, as a secular person, nobody was like, I'm shocked. Everybody, everybody was like, yeah, like it was like a gay person coming out of the closet. We're like, yeah, you were the last person to know. Like, you know, I mean, everyone sort of was like, yeah, yawn. We, we, we thought you gave up on God years ago. The God you were talking about was so neutered. Um, (laughs) you know, and, and so but I think that the other part of it was, is that almost from the moment I looked at my wife and said, there's nothing left. And she said, yeah, you got to stop being a, you got to stop being a professional Christian. Mm-hmm. What she never said. And what I never felt was I got to stop being a minister. Mm-hmm. Ministry by the end for me had nothing to do with getting people to believe in God It had everything to do with trying to draw people into a set of relationships into a fellowship where they could find you know community where they could find connection where they would feel like they were part of a collective and so like i was a tribalist as a christian i was building tribes not so much around excluding other people but i was building tribes that said like hey here's a set of shared values let's rally around these And we'll love each other and we'll get so close to each other that we'll have the ability to then reach out and draw other people into the, into our family and sort of like welcome them in. And as soon as I became secular, I was like, well, that stuff all still makes sense. In fact, that stuff is the most human. That's the most evolved part of us is, you know, that's, that's the human survival strategy is cooperation and connection and communication. I mean, that's, that's literally, I mean, we don't, we don't, we haven't survived because we're the fastest, the strongest, the best teeth, you know, like, you know, we can't fly, you know, like we've survived because we're really good at this
1: connecting. Yeah, that, that's, uh, I, that really resonates with me because one of the things I've realized is that, you know, there was used the terminology years ago being called into the ministry. And what I really recognize now is that by personality, by nature, I tend to be the kind of person who, you put me in any group of people, I'll try to organize them, bring them together yeah. around shared values. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and so when I, if that's who I was, and I'm growing up in a religious culture, what am I going to gravitate to? Well, I'm going to gravitate to being a pastor, you know, that or, or a religious leader. I mean, that made a whole lot of sense. Uh, and it is interesting that when I finally left, my next occupation was community organizing in the inner city you know which had all of those same um, of course uh, characteristics all those same mechanisms uh, and yet there wasn't this religious uh, context that you're working in um, so I, I mean I think that makes a lot of sense that that in some sense a lot of us ended up doing that in the church because it seemed like the only game in town, so well, if you wanted to do that that's where you ended up doing it
0: uh, yeah it wasn't it wasn't Christianity that made you loving and it isn't wasn't Christianity that made you think that a group of people being together in a really positive way was a good thing that's what drew you into Christianity right you know like I agree. you were that guy and so and so when you came out of christianity it's not I was going to ask like what are you doing now because I, I'm like you I can't believe that you've like well I'm sick I don't believe in God anymore, so what's the point of being part of a collective group of loving people i I gotta think you're still part of some collective group of loving people, yeah,
1: well, you know first, I did community organizing in a inner city neighborhood that I'd lived in for twenty five years i know I know
0: that neighborhood,
1: yeah, so knew all the people, had you know raised my kids in the schools there uh pastored in the neighborhood for about a dozen years, but um so I spent about six years doing that, which was a blast. Really uh, loved it. Who'd you work for? Uh, it was Southeast Neighborhood Development, which was the Community Development Corporation yeah. there in, in Fountain Square, which is kind of this now nationally known uh, neighborhood, you know, for uh, in terms of renovation, uh, regentrification, um, and um, and that was a great experience. And now what I've done for the last two years is I'm actually. Uh, working with a small uh, NGO that does uh, water education and public health initiatives in uh, El Salvador and Nicaragua, and I'm, I'm enjoying that. You know, that's a that's been a tremendous experience. Uh, so my community has become much more global than it ever has been. Uh, yeah. And uh, but your marriage survived this, obviously. Well, no, or didn't it, did not. It? it didn't. It didn't. Did not. Now, in. Well,
0: I don't know why I said, obviously, I think it was because you referred to your wife earlier. I was like, I, I
1: apologize. No, that's all right. I'm remarried and, um, the, the, I, I think my marriage's failure, um, is not a direct result of leaving, uh, religion, leaving Christianity, um, However, I think perhaps that departure sped that process. I think that was probably going to happen regardless. Um, um, and, and frankly, um, uh, you know, when I remarried, the woman I remarried had, was in the process of going through the same uh, transformation, a transition, and, uh, you know, going through something like that together is a, is a really positive thing. Uh, I, I know from many people that I talk to that, um, that transition does destroy marriages and, uh, and that saddens me, you know, that, that, that
0: often is the case. Well, it's the, it's, the, it's the, the most intense version of the thing you were talking about where you were like a lot of, a lot of your relationships ended. Sure. People just couldn't handle the transition. Right. Right. Um, and, and I, mean, I, I'm counseling a lot of people now that are in religious transitions and, yeah, their marriages are, their marriages are really dicey.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of times it, that, like in my case, I think the transition may just reveal lots of deep fault lines that were already there. Uh, and, and so I, am not sure it's fair to blame the transition completely, but it's obviously a factor. You know? Yeah. It's obviously a,
0: a piece of it. So, so how long, how long have you been remarried? Uh, Six years. Okay. So, so while you were still doing the
1: community organizing, correct, correct. So, um, it wasn't until I, I, I didn't finally come out publicly, in a big way. Uh, you know, I, what I, I, I don't do half measures, I guess. So when I uh, decided to come out, there's a festival here in Indianapolis called uh, Spirit in Place, and it's an annual. Uh, uh, they bring in national speakers and do all kinds of different events, local things. There's something going on in six or seven places in the city for for a week. And it's all around spirit and place. And I i had done a lot of speaking with that over the years, different occasions. And um, so their theme was more or less change. So uh, I talked to the director and said, well, what would you think? Is it within your parameters to have someone talk about leaving the religion in the, in the church for a spirit in place conference. And she said, absolutely. So, uh, we got a big auditorium and I stood up in front of about 600 people, friends, family, strangers, and, uh, gave that speech that's on my website, which is, uh, uh, basically was my, my coming out speech, I guess. Uh, and, um, that was an incredible experience. Um, uh, in the sense that there were lots of friends and family who were there and said, "Absolutely, what what you kind of heard, Bart. This this isn't a big surprise. You know, you got our support, and we're with you." But there were also people who either could not come to that because it was so uh, sad for them, yeah, uh, or others who were angry. You know, yeah, you know, I you know, I probably had you know, a dozen, 15 people who went into ministry, basically with my encouragement, and many of them are doing well, doing great, great things, and and how difficult it was for them not to see my departure as a Bet- condemnation. And a betrayal. Well. Yeah, a betrayal as well, a condemnation, and and as much as I would say it wasn't, that this was, you know, for me, and, uh, you know, just a a sense that that if I had taught these things to them and now said I didn't believe them, uh, what did that mean? And, and having to help people say that, well, I am as authentic now as I was back then.
0: I meant it then. I mean it now.
1: Exactly. There, there, was, there was nothing that was artifice. You know, it was all as authentic as I could be. And, and that I hope you will trust that in me, that what I have to continue to do is, is be as authentic as I, as I can be.
0: And I think that's why, I mean, that's why I've tried to communicate my secular humanism. And and the reason I, and, and, and by the way, I'm not thrilled with the word term humanism. It's, it's like Winston Churchill used to say about democracy. It's the worst form of government, except for all the rest. And I go like, for me, secular humanism, like it's the worst thing to call myself, except for all the rest. Like, right. but I think, I think the thing is, is that when people hear me speak now they say, wow, you're still such a preacher. And sure. Sure. And when I, and when I, or when they see like that, I'm trying to get people in my neighborhood together for dinner once a week. Like I did back when I was an inner city pastor in in Cincinnati, they're like, like you're using all your old bag of tricks. Mm -hmm. And I, and I'm sort of like, yes. Um, I mean the thing about, being part of a, a religious community for me was, is that that narrative at the center of it is, to my mind now, a, a terrible narrative. Mm-hmm. And and so if you can make a religious community work around a terrible narrative like that, it must mean that everything else you're doing, the eating, the singing, the pastoral care, the missions trips, like all of that has to be really good to compensate for the fact that the essential narrative is you're a piece of shit and God wants to kill you. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, my, my sense is that that part of it, that's not Christian technology. That's human technology. The technology that says like, look, we should, we should gather together and we should come up with some rituals to remind us that life is worth living. And we should try to instill our children with a sense of values and a sense of hope and that's, I think, why even my, the people I led into the ministry look at me and they basically write me letters and say, it seems to me you're doing the same stuff you always did. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and, and I wonder, like, do you feel like in some ways you're doing a lot of the same stuff you always did when you're meeting with people, when you're talking with them about their lives? Um, or, or is it so different for you?
1: Well, I, th- I think it is a little bit different.
0: Um, I sense that. Phil,
1: Phil Gully, who is the the person I uh, co-authored the the Grace books uh, with, uh, you know, he and I have been best friends since seminary. Um, still talk almost every day, see each other at least once a week. And a lot of people, it's funny, he speaks publicly and does a lot of speaking, and, and often they will say, well, you know, what happened to Jim Mulholland and and now you guys aren't friends anymore, you know? And he always kind of laughs and says, well, why would we not be friends, you know? Um, but it's, it's really interesting because I would say where he and I are about the important things in life is, a, is very close. Right. And yet he's still a pastor, still speaks as a, a Christian speaker, still considers himself a progressive Christian. And, and, and I made that transition. Um, and the other day, he and I were talking, and he, he said, well, what, what do you think the difference is? Um, and I said, well, you and I both spent lots of years going to timeshare resorts. And part of the deal was to go to the timeshare resort is you have to sit through the two-hour sales spiel. And I finally said, I'm not going to the sales spiel anymore, and you're okay about still doing that. And he kind of laughed. He says, well, there's some truth to that. But, I, but I've thought a little bit about that. And and I think the other thing is, which is a little deeper question, is I think I finally didn't want to go to the resort anymore. Now, that doesn't mean I'm anti-community, but there was something about wanting to explore the world outside of the constraints of, of uh, a well-defined experience where we pretty much know who's going to be there, what we're going to do, what the setting's going to be, what uh, which for many years Christianity offered me. In that now, I kind of like to explore, and it's more like putting your backpack out and heading for a national park, and you get on a trail and you meet somebody and you walk with them for a while and you have a really good time and you may talk really deeply, and then they go their way and you go your way, and, and that's, that's okay, you know? Um, I, and, and I hate to say that because that sounds almost anti-community, no, it just sounds like you're burned out. Well, that may be some of it. But but I think also it's this sense that there are um, a multitude of ways to engage in the wor- world. And I think, for instance, my, my wife and I, um, I, I'm much more outgoing than she is. And I think one of the things we've really struggled with in our marriage and found it kind of really... Began to appreciate is that being outgoing or being um, you know more uh, introverted, it's not a good or bad, you know. It's just different, you know. And what you, how you engage and and the ways you go about that are, are different. So, um, what I what I've discovered is that I am much more interested now in micro community than I am macro community, which for many years, macro community was what I, what is about the more people you could get. And you think about as a pastor, you're kind of encouraged to be that the more people you can get, the larger the the crowd, the bigger a number of people in your audience, that's kind of this measure that you're doing good community. And I, and I think I've kind of, um, come back to a place where, um, if I can sit down to dinner with two or three people and we have a great conversation for that evening. Um, that's community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so
0: it's, I mean, it's so interesting because I, I think that that grow, grow, grow thing is all about money and it's all about economies of scale. And, you know, um, when you're a professional pastor, you you know, there's, you know, the, there's this pressure, right? Um, for me, the communities that I try to build now, are usually, they end up being around 30, 35 people. Mm-hmm. And and what they are is they're sort of a recognition that there are a lot of broken people that they're not going to do well sitting at a table with just two or three other people because they're, they're awkward or they can't connect. But that if you can build a slightly bigger party, they can... Be the person who's carrying the drinks around or they can be the person who's playing right. the records like they can find their place in a bigger party um and they can feel connected in, a, in in that way and and that if you have enough if you have a handful of healthy people at the center of it you can sort of you have a carrying capacity and you can make life work for like a family you can make right. you can make life work for people who otherwise would be very vulnerable um and, and so, you know, I think that might be still my sort of ministry or my my outreach arm, where I'm sort of looking. I walk, I drive down the street in a neighborhood like your your old one, and I look at these kids on the corner, and I'm thinking like, how do I transform that kid's life into something better? It's not how do I get him saved, it, it, it's it's you know get him get him to heaven or or get him to believe something. It's just like that doesn't look like a lot of fun being alone on the corner, having your relationships defined by street life. Um, I wonder what it would take to get that kid into a into a set of relationships that were really life-giving. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sort of the small community seems to me to be the best vehicle to transform broken lives.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think I'd, be, I'd even be careful about that, Bar. I guess what I was trying to say is I think for so long in the church, community was defined in some some fairly uh strict ways there was a lot of judgment about this community versus that community uh you know the, the church was you were looking for the one the one right way right and and i think that's what i've realized is and, and again i i'm not going to if going to a 2000 member mega church is is where you're at and it brings you some real happiness and then more power to you i i I think what I want to do, though, is have a place where this community can be done in a wide variety of ways. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And then this is more personal, is also realizing that um, as a charismatic person, um, what tends to happen lots of times in community, if I'm not careful, is I'm kind of pushed to the top. And people connect to me in ways that I never intended, but they, they kind of happen that way um, and recognizing that I want to break that pattern personally.
0: You just don't want to be that guy for them.
1: Exactly. It, it's kind of like the, the, the Buddha saying, you know, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. you know, this sense that, um, this is a, is, is an individual journey. And how do we help people to embrace that? Because that's scary. I mean, that thought of that I'm responsible for my own life. I mean, think about that. That's, one of the things that I think makes stepping out of religion very frightening for people is because you really are saying, I'm responsible for my life. Yeah. It's it's mine, and what am I going to do with it? And And so how do we admit that, claim that, value that, but at the same time, uh, not all become independent lone wolves? You know, how do we recognize that there, there is this, also this need for us to be in relationship and, and intimacy and that some things in a in society we cannot do alone. We have to unite together uh, to accomplish certain things. So it's, it's how do you value that? that uh, how do you value the power of being an autonomous person in a group? And to me, I tended to always uh, err on the side of the group, Uh, even be suspicious of someone who is too autonomous, which is ironic because I'm sure they were all suspicious of me. Um, um, I'm sure many church leaders above me thought I was way too autonomous. But I I think that's what I'm trying to do. How do I begin to value um, and encourage people to fully um, accept their autonomy. And their individuality. Yeah. And not see it as as something to be afraid of or threatened by, but see it as uh, the, their greatest gift, you know?
0: See, it's uh, it's interesting. Two things that m- when you're talking, I'm thinking you started out by saying like, you know, we're individuals and, you know, something, you know, this that we're responsible for ourselves. And I just wonder like, Where's that come from for you? Like, like, in what holy book did you read that the individual was the primary unit of life? Like, why do you think
1: that? Well, and again, that may be influenced by Western thought, because Western thought does uh, emphasize the individual, where Eastern thought is much more uh, communal. So I certainly can't say that that isn't influenced by my, my cultural upbringing. Um, however, I do think... Well, just to give you an example, you know, for for almost my whole life, I get up early in the morning, and I would go for a walk. And when I was a Christian, that was my devotional time. You know, I would pray, I'd think, I'd listen. You know, it's very very much uh, that. When I left religion, I remember initially I quit walking because it was like, well, what do you do? You know, it, it felt very kind of empty. I wasn't exactly sure. And it finally just occurred to me that I needed to learn to go for a walk with myself. I'd done all those years of walking with God, walking with Jesus, you know, in fact, I use that terminology. I go for my morning walk with Jesus, you know, go with my walk with God, see what God's going to say this morning, you know, and and to finally realize I needed to listen to myself and to realize that that's probably who I was listening to all (laughs) along. Yeah. Um, and that that thing that I had projected as being God and Jesus had really done me pretty well. I mean, in, in many, many situations, when I listened to that voice, that voice uh, set me on the right path, you know, helped me make good decisions. So now, if that's my voice, am I willing to trust it? Am I willing to listen to it? So what I've discovered is those morning walks now have become equally rich, but it's this really deep kind of uh exploration of myself what's going on in me what what am i thinking about what's important and often that then uh impacts how i relate to the people i'm with and those kinds of things but you know i i think to say to people well in our society well you need to spend some time with yourself um for many people that's a really frightening thought you know um so how, how, to, again, I, I did, it's
0: so funny. Maybe it's because I live in Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that most people are alone. I mean, they're not necessarily spending time with themselves. They're not necessarily attuning themselves to the inner voice. Um, but, but they're lonely and they're alienated and they're isolated. And so what's interesting is, is that the only success I've had at getting people to attend to themselves is if I can get them to become part of a group of people that are emphasizing the value of attending to themselves.
1: Very good point, very good point.
0: And so there's this kind of tension between individuality and personal responsibility and community and and collective responsibility. I totally agree. And so I, I don't know how to get somebody to be a good individual unless I get them together with a bunch of other people and say, hey anybody got a good being a good individual story today? Like, Hey Jim, tell that story about the walk. Tell what happens on those walks. Can you help me? Because like, I need to be part of a community with you because otherwise I won't learn about walking alone. Mm -hmm. If that makes any sense.
1: No, no, it does. It does. And again, if you think about uh, obviously creating a website, uh, has been a way for me to kind of share those kinds of stories, share those kinds of experiences with many, many people, uh, and some of whom have connected to me. Um, I remember, you know, when I was a progressive Christian, one of the Buddhist um, parables I really liked was the story of these three monks who set off to uh, find nirvana, you know, find find uh, this place of inner peace, and they finally get to this huge walled compound, and the they get on each other's shoulders, and the top guy looks over and says, we found it. So he climbs up and reaches down and grabs the second guy, and they're both on top, and they, they reach down for the third guy, and the third guy says, uh, and they said, you know, we'll lift you up here. And he says, no, I'm going to go back and tell everybody else where it's at. Um, I have mixed feelings today about that parable because in one sense that journey to find that is part of finding it <laughs> you know it's it's the journey itself that is kind of what takes you there so the guy who goes back and says i'm going to all take you there does he rob those people in some sense of the very experience of of getting there and and the second piece is in what sense are we sometimes afraid of entering that new place, so it's better to go back to the old place and 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 be that leader that that draws people. you never have to lead. go in yourself you never have to go in yourself, you know um, so a, a parable that at one time kind of was oh yeah that's what it's about you know that's what i'm going to be i'm going to be the guy that goes back and tells people how to get there. Uh, Troubles. Maybe now I'm the guy that climbed over the fence and I'm kind of checking it out on the other side. Uh, Or is there a way to be both? You know, is there a way to climb the fence and still tell people about it? Well,
0: the re the, I guess the, the thing is, is that I meet a lot of really smart people and thoughtful people and caring people, especially in this post Christian life, people like you, Mm -hmm. you know. The vast majority of people never think their way out. Like they don't, they don't, they're not, they're they're too busy watching football games. They they don't think enough about their life and their faith and everything to get to the place where they would see the the inconsistencies or or, or come across the incongruities or struggle with the 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 pain, the suffering in the world, and the idea that there's this loving God who lets it go. All of that, and so I meet a lot of really smart, lovely, thoughtful people like you, and. Their tendency is to say, when they've made it out, everybody should walk their own path. Walking this path is what made me. Mm-hmm. But I guess after living for many years among a very broken people, I maybe maybe too aware that there are people who don't, who won't go to the park unless somebody takes them. That's fair. That's fair. And and so, you know. I remember reading Dostoevsky's The Myth of the Grand Inquisitor. Um and you know when the the church guy is talking to the the guy who's actually Jesus and sa- saying to him like you know you're 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 telling people to to walk this difficult path and to 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 do all these things he's like don't you know how people really are like that's that kind of self motivation is only for the very few what about the masses? Mhm. And so you know, and, and when I, whenever I say that out loud, Jim, I mean, I was at, I was at a, a hospital, I was at Children's Hospital here in Los Angeles. A friend of mine does the pastoral, uh, he, he does the, um, CPE. He does the, he, he oversees the people that are doing their chaplaincy training there. Mm-hmm. I forget what they call it. And, uh, so he had me down to talk to like six seminarians who are doing their chaplaincy rotations there. And I started talking this way you would have thought they were going to tear me to shreds. They hated me so much. And they were like, how pompous and how paternalistic. Like you're acting as though like some people are going to, you know, can, can live authentic individual lives and other people just, they need to be led along. And I'm thinking to myself, like, I know this sounds bad, <laughs> but I, but like, it's been my experience with people. There are a lot of people out there that need to be led.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and think about it, Bart. I mean, we're two white Anglo-Saxon Americans. Highly
0: well, educated.
1: You know, yeah. Talk about having the luxury to journey the way we've journeyed. I yeah. mean, in fairness, you're right. I mean, we that, that journey has been largely unencumbered. Uh, and Had and hours I, a
0: day to think about it, hours a day to write books about it.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So I I think that's a a fair critique that, that, um, what, what responsibility does come with that? I mean, uh, um, but I also hear what they're saying is, and I guess this, what I really struggle against is there is a a real elitism in saying, I found, I found Nirvana. I found the Holy land, you know, uh, I found the Jordan river, you know, I'm going to bring you back and and help you cross it. I mean, um, or I just found a way of walking.
0: Like I found a way of journeying and this way yeah. works for me. And I think that one of the things that the difference between me now, like it was funny when you were talking about how people shut down on the conversation. Like mm-hmm. if, if you tell me you're Christian, Oh my gosh, you should see me now. Cause it's freaky. Cause I go to, I go to the campus at university of Southern California and I'll just walk up to a kid who's reading a book and say, "What you reading? And he'll tell me, I'm, what are you studying? How'd you get here? And eventually he goes, like, who are you, man? Like, why are you asking me these questions? Um, you know, in a friendly way. And I'll say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm the humanist. Ch-. he say, are you a professor? Are you this? No, 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 I'm the humanist chaplain here. He goes, like, what is that? I said, well, you know, that means that, like, I sort of try to nurture the spiritual lives of all the people who want to be really good people and make the world a better place, but don't believe in God. And Jim, half the time, the person's eyes light up and they go, oh my gosh, that's me. Like, Mm -hmm. could I be part of your group? There's actually a club. Like I had no idea, you know? And so, and so rather than turning away and the Christians or the the believers, they don't turn away either. They go like, oh, that's so weird. Like, how did you get there? Like, I believe in God. And so what I find is, is that the way that my Christianity used to shut people down saying like, I'm on this kind of path now where I'm trying to figure out how to find meaning, how to make meaning. Mm -hmm. Um, through relationships it tends to open people up the difference between me then and now is it used to be that like i had this way of walking and i thought it was the only way that would ever get you to the to the promised land and so i was trying to convince everybody that my way of walking was better right now I'm like, there are many ways to walk. There are many ways to live. There are many ways to have a meaningful life. Like there are autistic people who don't connect and they don't need community, but that doesn't mean their lives are valueless or worthless. And so what I end up doing is I end up saying like, this is the way I'm walking. And if somebody goes like, oh, that looks horrible to me. I go like, yeah, it's probably not the way for you. Right. Right. But I still talk about the way I'm walking and I still want to be out there interacting with people because for a lot of people, they're going, damn, I've been looking for a way to walk. And none of the other ways work for me. The way you're walking sounds really good. Can I walk with you?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so, like, I guess I'm not trying to coerce people as much as I used to, but I'm definitely still, like, looking at somebody and going, like, you look like you're not getting along very well. Have you tried this?
1: Yeah, and I think especially the college campus is a is a pretty appropriate way for that approach because they're kind of at this They've intentionally come to this place to kind of open up the world, to explore the world in lots of variety of ways, whether it's socially, uh, intellectually, philosophically. Uh, So I think having people there who can kind of help in that process, I think that makes a whole lot of sense. And in a sense, you're only going to walk with them for three or four years at the most anyway, and then they're going to go out and have to figure that out on their own. Uh, So I I think there's some really value in, in, in doing that, especially within that context. I think the trickier thing is, and I, I do not have the answer to this, how do we even initiate those conversations in a world where people may have never even thought about sitting down and exploring those kinds of questions, where where either they're distracted, as you said earlier, you know, football, whatever it is, they're distracted by, or or their struggle to survive is such that there isn't much room for them to, to, to kind of explore that. Um, or, and and this is something I think you and I are, are both beneficiaries, they didn't ever have anybody to even teach them how to ask the question. So it's not a, often an issue that they haven't explored the question. They don't even know how to ask it. And sometimes they don't even know they have the right or permission to ask it. You know, um, yeah. that one is, is much trickier. I, I think But I... one of the things, one, one of the things though that's happened is, um, in the first 50 years of my life, I tended to speak to large groups of people. Now, most of my contacts are one-on-one or, or very small groups. Um, I don't think it's an either or, it's a both and. And I, I guess for me, I'm kind of enjoying this, this new uh, this new way of being and, and, uh, and this new interaction, you know?
0: Well, I mean, I think two things first is when you've been a pastor, a hardcore pastor in real churches with like every week you're up there. Yeah. Like whether you believe in God or don't believe in God, you hit about 55. If you've been doing it well, you're tired. Yeah, that is certain. And so, I, you know, like if, if part of this isn't necessarily philosophical, it's just experiential where you just go like, I'm just, I don't want to be that guy anymore. Like let somebody, like, even if I agree with Barth that somebody needs to play that role in people's lives, let it be somebody younger who's like got some energy for it. I'm tired. I'm ready to just not relate to people that way. Yeah. Um, I think that's fair. That would make sense. That's fair. But the other thing is when you're talking about the window in, I'm going like, what you said earlier, when you when you said like ultimately, Christianity had been a pathway to happiness for me, and then I realized like it, it was no longer making me happy. Um, I find that happiness is the way in for me with most people. Yeah, I agree. But the people who aren't asking those ultimate questions, the the one question that most people are asking is, how do I how can I be happy? Mm -hmm. And so if I want to talk to them about like the value of gratitude or the importance of social justice, or even just the, the, the the importance of building stronger relationships, it's always for me, like it's always built around or the starting point is like, is what you're doing, making you happy. Right. And if your happiness isn't there, then I'm sort of like, well, what do you think makes people happy?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Who are the happiest people you know? And, and what's funny is, of course, whenever anybody points to me to the, who are the happiest people they know, there are always people that are engaged in loving relationships, that are doing work that somehow makes the world better for other people, and that have cultivated some kind of sense of gratitude or some kind of sense of wonder. They're, they, they, they're like, oh, yeah, she, she can look at a flower and just get so excited about it. And you sort of go like, okay, well, let's. Uh, you want to be happy. All those happy people are meaningfully connected. Let's talk about meaningful connection. Mm-hmm. And, and so for me, happiness, you know, I, I'm a big fan I, and you probably came across Robert Ingersoll. Oh, that's, sure. Absolutely. You know, and his thing is like, you know, the great Trinity of science has taught us that the only human value is happiness Yeah, and that the way to be happy is by making others happy. Yeah. And so, you know, for me, happiness has been like, I'm glad that you started there because I think that that's where, that's where it starts. Um, cause that is our most fundamental instinct.
1: Yeah, I think something else that shifted, it's really interesting, and I I liked Ingersoll very much, uh, was also abandoning this idea of sacrifice as being a uh, core characteristic or value. In fact, it was interesting. I had a conversation with a Christian leader uh, several years ago, and I was just talking about this happiness thing, and, and the response was, well, who said life should be happy? (laughs) <laughs> and I, I, thought, oh my goodness, you know. Uh, but that was the legitimate response: was that you know you really shouldn't value happiness. That you know life can can sometimes be a drudgery. You know, it kind of reminded me of the, the old kind of language we used with the slaves. You know, well this is a bitter, horrible thing you have, but you know, in the by and by, it'll all turn out, and you'll you'll be happy. You know, um, and and I think one of the things that has shifted in me, is. I no longer do things as a sacrifice. You know, if if I can't figure out to, how to do something in such a way that it brings me happiness, then I probably shouldn't do it. Uh, now, ironically, I still find myself doing many of the same things. Uh, still, you know, working for social justice, you know, relating to to oppressed people, uh, caring about many of the same things, but there is no sense in which I'm doing anything out of a sense of sacrifice or obligation or, um, necessity. Um, and the, and the book I was thinking about is Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now. Uh, and I think he emphasized that too, is that there is this sense of how do you get to that place that, um, what is authentically you meets what in the world is authentic. Uh, you know, what, what does, how does your gifts, your needs, your interests kind of fit in with those places in the world that that would be helpful? And, and I think where this is really helpful for me to realize is I used to see every need as being something that I should either feel guilty about, responsible for, and a need to address and I think once you uh, once you kind of become more aware of yourself and who you are and your own responsibility to yourself, you know, I need to find those places where I plug in that it brings me joy, that it's part of that happiness. And if I'm doing that and it's not, you know, I, I probably need to examine myself. And there may be some things that need to change in me. But it could be that just isn't what I'm supposed to be doing. And there's somebody else who could do that very thing, and it would create that kind of experience for them.
0: I think that's really important. I think that's really important because I still believe in sacrifice um, because, you know, playing the piano, even if you love the concert, you've got to show up at the practice. And there may come a time when you're like, this isn't fun, but you go like, but the whole thing, if you step back from the whole thing. Exactly. It's all, you know, it's, it's joyful. It's, it's full of life for you. And so I still believe that there, t- everything can't be, everything can't be. When I say happiness, I'm not talking about like that moment to moment, like I'm exactly, you know, I'm talking now, about not
1: everything. is. not, everything is fun. No, there's a difference there, but,
0: and, but, but, but there's a sense in which all of our activities, if our activity is not connected to something, which is ultimately life-giving if it's ultimately joyful. Right, I I I think you're right. Like you you have to ask yourself if there's not some ultimate force out there, you know, that I'm you know trying to curry favor with, then this life is the only one I have. Right, and that's when you say like ultimately I want to make the most of it, and so you know I'm married, you know, like do I sacrifice within my marriage? Do I do things I don't want to do? Do I experience pain? You go like, oh yeah, but the overall like that sacrifice is in the context of it's, it's a price that I'm paying for something that is ultimately of great value. It's a bargain. Sure. Um, Just like, you know, when people die, people say to me, "Yeah, death is so terrible. And I go like, death is part of the bargain of being alive Mm -hmm. and it may not be the fun part of the bargain, but on the whole, the whole thing put together, is is an incredibly worthwhile and valuable gift. And so I think that there are sacrifices within meaningful stuff. But I think if something is pure sacrifice, yeah, the the sacrifice is never the actual benefit. It's always a price you're paying for something that better be more it better be more worthwhile than the sacrifice.
1: Yeah, and you know that really came through to me years ago when I read Mother Teresa's Oh, gosh. Diaries, my. Know, after her death and to realize that, and this is my perception and others might argue with it, but I think she was fairly miserable. Oh, it, it, it seems really clear to me. Yeah. And, and she, but she had bought into this idea that she couldn't be, that happiness was somehow, uh, inauthentic.
0: Fra- you know? Frivolous, shallow. Right, right. And I think uh, and I think like ultimately she was counting on the fact that the best part of the bargain would be after she died. Yeah. Like I talked to a lot of post Christians, but they haven't necessarily been on this journey. Um but didn't spend days and days thinking about every intricate question of each piece of it. You know? And didn't lead and didn't lead hundreds of other people into it. Yeah. You know, and so a lot of times what's characterizes me in the secular world is people are like, wow, he's the positive one. He's the one who's not angry at religion. He doesn't hate. He's not trying to tear down. He's not an anti-theist. Right. And that's really good. That's been really good for me because I don't feel that way. And and I'm with you when I say, like, if it's making you happy, you know, it's like, I see a lot of Christians where I sort of say, keep the faith. It's clearly agreeing with you. Yeah. Um, but lately i've been getting because i do a lot of counseling now and and by the way those 100 people that write to you if they're looking for somebody to kind of pastor them send them my way i'm happy okay, to do
1: okay, it okay okay um,
0: but in all seriousness like you know like i i have a lot of people that write to me and like i do a lot of skype counseling with people people that are in transition like i'm wi- I'm, I'm available for that but hmm. but when these people come to me a lot of times what i find is that the real issue is they would be happy to leave religious people alone except for the children. Because on some level, the narratives that we were raised with, you and I may have skated clean, but a lot of people get really hurt by that narrative. That's true. We all look at the way other people are raising their kids. From our perspective, we always seem right.
1: Um, I I guess the, the only a uh, caveat to that and this is what i said very early in our conversation is i th- i think we were both raised by fairly conservative christian men uh who had fairly public uh experiences and and were certainly educators you know uh but i think both of us were raised by men who were as interested in the questions as the answers um And I guess to me, that is probably what we need to continue to, to strive for, for children is how do we help them, um, know, explore, engage with the questions. Yeah. Um,
0: I remember my dad saying to me after I came out saying, I don't know whether I'm a good father or a bad father. He said, because a lot of people tell me I'm a bad father because my son didn't stay the course as a Christian, and so I must have set a bad example in some way. He said, and I feel that way sometimes. And He said, but other times I think there's a kid who really knows how to think for himself. I did that. Um, yes. you know, and, and so sometimes he's proud of the fact that he created an environment in which I could go my own way and not be terrified to do so. And other times he's like, maybe I should have made it more terrifying for him to go his own way. It's it, he yeah. he's really, I, I mean, I don't. My dad is really, he he's he's managed it really well, and he's mm-hmm. been wonderful to me. But, but this has been a hard
1: thing for him. Yeah, it's been a it's been an interesting thing for me in terms of my own parenting and grandparenting is realizing, um. That, you know, there was this old idea that you wanted your kids to be more uh, economically uh, advantaged than you were. Right. And that was just kind of the assumption. You know, that's the way it should work, that, you know, they were a little richer than you, and then their grandchildren be a little richer, that you kind of pass on this cumulative wealth. And it, it strikes me that if my children never move beyond my set of beliefs and assumptions, that that's a loss, that I have not done my job as a parent, that if I'm supposed to to pass on some some kind of financial wealth, and they're supposed to go beyond me, then wouldn't we think that about things that are much more important than uh, dollars? You know, do they, are they more of a global citizen? Are they more, compassionate? Are they more open to new ideas? Um, that's what I want for my kids. I, 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 want, I want to be in the place where they are exploring things and engaging in things that still make me uncomfortable and maybe always will. Uh, that that for me is a, a sign of my success. Uh, and that our fathers were successful precisely because they made it possible for us to exceed them, you know, um, and That's, I don't mean exceed and nah, nah, yeah, you know, better than, but I mean, to, to go places, to go they, places they never got to go.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think that sometimes I, I, I and, and I may be projecting this cause I want it to be true, but sometimes what I see in my dad's eyes is a sort of a sense of, I, I can never tell whether he's really sad. Or whether he feels like he's supposed to be sad, mm-hmm. um, and but the feeling that he's supposed to be sad—I know that really makes him sad. Sure. <laughs> so it's 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 layered. But I love what you just said. I love what you just said because I think that that's that's true. And I I will tell you with my own son, especially, he's gone some places that have really made me uncomfortable. Really scared me. I'm scared for him sometimes. And yet he does it with such a good heart and with such excitement. And, and, and so I want to, there's a big part of me that wants to pull him back and say, like, just stay with me. Like, Mm -hmm. cause where I am is so exciting to me. Like just stay with me. And he's like, no, no, no. I want to go a little bit farther into the country. Yeah. Yeah. So I got one quick question. It's just a personal question. Like I, I, and this is, this is going to be the most bizarre question you're going to get from me. It's like, I never, used any drugs at all when i was a kid Mm -hmm. but when i came out like all these people all the young people i was working with they were sort of like drugs for them was just they were like consciousness is fluid and what ended up happening was is that at one point my wife and i were like well let's try marijuana Mm -hmm. and so we got a couple of friends together older friends got to a safe place and like we did and it was a really it was a singular experience like i had never i was like oh my gosh like it was, it was probably the, one of the most powerful experiences I had of going, like, my brain is this physical thing, and if you alter it, I will think differently, mm. you know, but then I started talking to all these spiritual people, secular spiritual people, who were, like, using shrooms and LSD, and I started, like, studying, not recreationally, they were doing it, like, in very controlled settings, like ayahuasca retreats, and... I didn't know if like in your journey, especially now that you're working in, in around the world, if you had encountered any people that were sort of like, well, if you're really interested that when you're talking about like going to a farther land than our fathers did, you know, psychedelic experiences. And I wondered like, have you had any kind of encounter with anybody who's, who's had those, that stuff going on?
1: You know, I can't say I have Bart, but that, but it is interesting that I, I think certainly the stigmas for me around alcohol and drugs and sexuality and a whole yeah. lot of other things have shifted. You me know, too. I, I certainly am not at all judgmental of that. And, uh, and, and think a lot of our laws around a lot of things are more about control than, uh, morality. You know, we've made them about morality, oh, yeah. but I think they're largely about control. Thanks so much for talking with me. This oh, was... No, I really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, I, I still remember, I don't know if you remember this, you and I were both out at spectacular in Lamoni, Iowa.
0: Oh my gosh. Yes.
1: I think you were there either a day or two after me or a day or two before me. We were both there and I thought, Oh, I really wish I'd had a chance to sit down with you because <sighs> I think we had communicated through email and, and some other things. But, uh, but i realized that our trajectories were very close when we both ended up out there with those those wonderful people i mean they were just lovely super people super people but you know I, if you'd gone 10 15 years before and said i was going to be speaking to a bunch of uh, mormons you know that's what i would have called them you know <laughs> so
0: yeah uh, no it's been a, it's been a crazy journey and um and i think that the thing that is the most exciting for me about it is that it's really helped me to start thinking way ahead of time about dying
1: mm-hmm.
0: and making sense of my death. And I find that I talk to a lot of people about that's a, a lot of people very have a great concern about that, both secular and spiritual people. Like death is a real, you know, Freud was not far off. And so
1: why, why, why do you think that is, Bart? Because that's really interesting. This is a place where my experience is very different. I, I agree. A lot of people think about that, whether they're religious or not, and I realize I never I never think about it at all. Now I, I'm not sure this is necessarily a, uh, uh, an intentional thing. I think for whatever reasons, I, I, I mean I, I don't think I'm in denial about it. I just I don't worry about it. Uh, what is it, do you think that makes death so worrisome? Uh,
0: honestly, I, 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 it's, it's funny. Cause I have the same response to you. Like I, I think about it, but I don't worry about it very much. Yeah, But I think that if again, like your dad, my dad, the way that we were raised, Christianity was never for me about avoiding hell. Right, from the very beginning, it was always about like it was about creating a community that could make help could help heal people's lives. like it was never about the reason I, my dad used to preach this sermon would say, if there was I believe in heaven and I believe in hell, but if there was no heaven and if there was no hell, I would still follow Jesus because it's the best way of life. Mm-hmm. and I really bought into that mm-hmm. and um and so I think for a lot of people, because the first thing they're taught about faith is that it's the way to avoid dying there's this sort of implicit thing and you should be afraid of dying so when they're when they're children they are taught that death is the enemy Mm -hmm. and in the same way that if you're taught that black people are the enemy like that will that will seep into your consciousness and you will get to the point where you literally are afraid of black people Yeah. Um,
1: Yeah, Yeah, you're right. That's, that's probably it. And so you and I were never kind of imbibed with that. So uh,
0: we never, we never were. And then the, the other thing is, I think that for some of the secular people, their sense of individuality is so strong. Their sense that like, everybody's an individual. I am my own person that, that they don't feel connected to the whole. Mm -hmm. And therefore when they die, it is like the the end of the universe hmm. whereas for me i do feel connected to the whole right and i feel like if i teach a young person something about how to have a happier marriage and then i drop dead and that young person then has a happier marriage i'm still like i'm still i'm still in the game like I'm connect, I'm part of a chain and like, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I f- I'm, I'm not just excited about my life. I'm excited about life. Yeah.
1: In the traditional models, you're born, you live life, and then there's the afterlife and that it's kind of this continual trajectory up. Yeah. And, and I, I think somehow fairly early, I figured out that it's, it's a curve you know, that you, you start here and then you, you learn all these things and you you know, I, I feel like I'm kind of at the top of the curve right now. I'm at the this this is the sweet spot, you know, for the you know, from about forty to sixty, you finally figured out a lot of things, you can really enjoy it, your anxieties are less, your fears are less. I mean, this is the sweet spot. And then there's this gonna be this decline that that isn't as you said earlier, it's just kind of the way it is. It's the natural uh what happens to your body? I, I, book a book I recently read that I'd highly recommend is uh, "Being Mortal." Oh, that's a great book. Yeah, that's just the way it's going to happen, and you don't have to be afraid of it. And now there are ways to manage it. There's ways to to uh, to take it seriously, but it's the very, uh, in fact, the one thing in there I thought was fascinating was his the studies that have shown that people who go to hospice actually live longer than people who try to fight the disease. Oh, yeah. And, and it, that just made so much sense to me because what diminishes life? Fear, anxiety, those kinds of things. What seems to uh, in, in improve life? Acceptance, you know, accepting whatever it is, you know? I meet a lot of younger people, even middle-aged
0: people who are terrified of death. Go to an old folks' home. Mm-hmm. Everybody's not so terrified. As a matter of fact, some people are like, could it come a little sooner? Um, <laughs> exactly, because they've they've had enough. Yeah, our brains can only take in so many experiences. Our 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 hearts can only l- care about and lose so many people. And so, like to me, death is it's it's not the negation of life. It's just it's it's what makes it possible. I mean, biologically, it is what makes it possible. Like yeah. sing, single-celled organisms never have to die. Mm-hmm. and they can never achieve consciousness. Mm-hmm. Consciousness is made possible when you differentiate your reproduction from the rest of your life functions. Yeah. And so like, that's, that's Ursula Goodenough stuff, that sacred depths of nature. And she's just like, look, the weird thing is, is that the brain that you use to worry about dying, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be possible without death in, entering into the picture. Like death is what makes your consciousness possible.
1: Very interesting.
0: It's been really helpful to me like helpful is the wrong word. Like it's been really encouraging and inspiring and happy for me mm-hmm. to realize that you're living. Cause, cause I'm, 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 it's really been a joy to talk to you. It just has oh, and
1: been. Vice versa. Bart. Yeah. really enjoyed it very much. So.
0: All right, brother. It is okay. good to talk to you. I'll talk okay. to you soon.
1: Take care, Bart. Bye. Okay, so that was my conversation with Jim
0: Moholland, And I hope you liked it. I had a great time talking with him. You can find out more about Jim by checking out BartCampolo.org because I'll have a bunch of stuff on him up there. And uh, yeah, this has been great. I'm still at Yosemite. I'm going to go hiking. You go have a great day. I'll catch you next time. For more information about the work of Bart Campolo, please visit
1: BartCampolo.org.